0: everyone I'm Victoria and I'm Marty and together we are the MVC podcast Marty Victoria conversations episode 23
1: yeah we're totally in business again we <laughs> posted one episode we're making another yes. episode the the hiatus is over we're back to work on NBC podcast
0: Woo-hoo. Hooray. <laughs> um, yeah welcome back Marty. I guess to our regular schedule
1: I've been here where have you been no You're that's not true, that, that, is true. The... that
0: is not true You've been busy, too? Anyway. Okay. Sure. (laughs) Fine. We can fight
1: about it off air. So, okay, what are we going to do on this episode, Victoria?
0: All right. So we're going to talk about what we've been doing, I guess, for the last week. Um, We're going to try a new thing that we tried before, but I guess we're going to try it again, which is uh, tech news quickies. In other words, um, we're going to talk about a variety of things that have happened in the news and try to give a quick, quick take on it. See how that goes. Yeah, we
1: usually do longer discussions, and uh, that means we only get to a few topics. And we still generally like to have longer discussions, but uh, we felt like this week there were a lot of little things we wanted to quickly touch on, but we didn't want to, you know, bog down the podcast with really long discussion of each one of them. So we're going to try to hit them, some of them quicker before we get to the longer ones later. Right.
0: So we'll see how that goes. (laughs) It will be an interesting experiment. Um, But then we're going to talk about a couple of things more in depth, uh, specifically like the... Uh, re- resolution of the Oracle versus Google case, um, A oh uh, the news about Mark Zuckerberg's passwords and accounts being hacked, and a little thing about um, the Powerpuff Girls. <laughs>
1: Got to stay tuned for that one.
0: All right. Um, yeah, with that, we can get started.
1: Yeah. So um, what are we up to this week? Maybe I'll go first. Uh, it has been finals week at Stanford, and now all my final exams have been given, they've been graded. Uh, we had an easy time of it because we had a whole bunch of section leaders, undergraduate TAs, How many did you have? Uh, Oh, gosh. I think we had about 37 people there to grade 310 exams. So we had a ton of helpers. And we actually finished the whole exam grading in about three hours, which is a total record as far as I'm concerned. I've never had a grading that was that fast. It was great. Yeah, and my TA, Alicia, is awesome. My head TA. So the grading went really quickly. Um, Now we just have to finish up the final course grades, which is going to happen in the next day or two. And yeah, then I've got a little bit of a break for about a week, week and a half. And then I'm going to teach in uh, summer school at Stanford. So I've uh, got to keep the paychecks flowing in to afford the Bay Area <laughs> rent. So that's me, what are you up to Victoria?
0: Um, let's see, so we are still trying to launch our project. So I guess uh, before, before we even launch, launch, um, Usually, you try to like run a like do a small launch if you can. Like um, in Chrome, it would be things like you could have the uh, have your feature enabled behind a flag, or if you go to like you know, I forgot what it's called now. It's probably Chrome flags or something. Like you can have your API enabled behind a flag, or in uh, Google.com, it's usually like some sort of experiment. Like um, oh, we might roll out to you know one percent of users or something like that. So. Um, Anyway, we are preparing for our initial experimentation. Um, so, I don't know. I, I forgot if I talked about this last week, probably. But launching is always hard. It's always just, like, there are way more bugs than you think. Um, and bugs are difficult because you never really know how long a bug is going to take until you've, like, diagnosed the bug versus a feature you can kind of like estimate about how long it'll take. So, and you don't know how many bugs there are, <laughs> like, uh, until you like uh, start using it. And s- so there's just like a lot of uncertainty when it comes to like launching stuff that uh, it usually, good rule of thumb is like, I don't know, <laughs> multiple, it, well, okay, it's either that you're going to be like probably multiple months later than you thought. Or you're going to have to live with like launching with bugs, which um, there are definitely companies who are okay with that, like things okay with launching things that are pretty broken. But uh, Google.com is not usually one of them. So, yeah. Anyway, that's what I'm up to.
1: Launching is hard. See also George R.R. R. Martin. Oh man. Yeah. But- Game of
0: Thrones joke. Not that I <laughs> not that I care about Game of Thrones, but I know that guy.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, all right, let's uh, do some of our tech news quickies. This is where we're going to try our darndest not to ramble for a 15 minutes about each topic. So, yeah, <laughs> um, I guess one of us will introduce the thing, give a quick explanation, and the other person will give their reaction, and then we'll go to the next topic. All
0: right, let's uh, give it a try Marty.
1: Yeah, here we go. So first one is it sounds like Verizon is thinking about purchasing Yahoo. And they already bought AOL previously. Uh, and it looks like they're they're submitting a bid. They're going to bid about $3 billion to see if they can buy Yahoo. Just to be more clear, this is Yahoo's Internet business. They split Yahoo into two companies. One is a holding company for the, the shares they own of Alibaba, which is a foreign uh, search company, which basically is most of the valuable asset of Yahoo. They split all their Internet technologies off into its own company, and they're selling that, and Verizon is bidding on it. Sounds like the reason they're bidding is because they want the users and the ad revenue that might come with the Yahoo purchase. Victoria, what do you think?
0: Uh I have very little feeling on this. Um I yeah, I guess I don't I don't know why they bought AOL. So I guess Verizon also owns AOL and that's sort of the tone of this article is like <laughs> Verizon could rule the nineties cyberscape. <laughs> um so I'm sure they bought AOL for a good reason. Like I bet just numerically it works out that they're gaining money or or, or I don't know. Like they probably just did some math and figured they could also, like, I don't think that they're planning to like make Yahoo or make it turn around. I think they're just like sort of like did some arithmetic and decided that it was worthwhile if they paid for X amount of money, they would get maybe Y amount of profit. My guess. I have no idea though.
1: Yeah, it seems weird. Yeah. I don't. I don't think there's much point in buying dead tech companies. Uh, oh well. But they have
0: Any- a, they have AOL, so that's why I'm like, maybe <laughs> maybe they have a plan. I don't know.
1: When I think hip tech company, I think Verizon, Yahoo, AOL the first three to come to mind. Okay, let's go on. What's the next one?
0: All right, so the Nest CEO, Tony Fidel, has left the company um, two, after, two years after Google's acquisition of it. So um, my thought on this is basically, like there's a lot of speculation for why this has happened and whatnot. I don't really have enough um, knowledge about the product for the company to have a strong comment on this either. Um, other than I've heard grumbles about like Internet of Things is hard, um, and people have not been super impressed with like the certain um, products, I think, by the greater company. Because, um, like, wait, wasn't there like so there's the Nest um, thermostat, which I think people really like, but there was like the Nest. Uh, fire something, like the um, fire detector, I think was pretty universally panned. Um, But that's the limit of my knowledge.
1: Yeah, yep, yep. Uh, Google bought them two years ago, and I think the big criticism has been that they haven't put out a lot of products since then, and what they have put out has a little bit underwhelmed. You're right, I think their core product, their thermostat products, are popular and people like them. Um, but it seems like it's been a little underwhelming since Google acquired the company. A little bit of question about Fidel's leadership or structure or something like that, but that's all internal stuff that who knows what's what and what's some stupid rumor, you know, like basically he's leaving. I, I don't know. I, it's hard to know exactly what's going on, um, but it is too bad. I think I think there was a lot of hype about Nest a few years ago, and now it sort of seems like they've, they've gone to Google to die or something. Like uh, there was another comment about how um, – Google, uh, Nest originally wanted to branch out into other home hardware, like a personal assistant or an audio product or something, but then at Google I.O., Google announced a thing called Google Home, which is like an Amazon Echo, like a little speaker that would live in your living room, and that was not built by the Nest team, so that seemed to imply that the Nest team wasn't the team to go to for these kind of products anymore, so I don't know, that just looks a little weird. It's not clear exactly what what's going on there, but uh, it's too bad, the marriage does not seem to be a totally happy marriage between Nest and Google, Alphabet, whatever. Yep. Um, so womp womp. Uh, <laughs> okay, well uh what's the next one?
0: All right, so Blackberry is struggling. Okay. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> um is this news? Like why is why are we talking about this now? Uh I guess they they continue to struggle. That seems not surprising. So yeah. <laughs> I don't have anything to add.
1: Yeah, there's just a recent report that their Android phones were doing really badly apparently. Um it seemed like they were trying to rebrand a little bit and sort of they ditched their OS, right? And they switched to Android phones that had hardware keyboards at the bottom. That was their that was going to be their unique thing was they would have physical keyboards cuz BlackBerry people like that and they were going to have a little bit of unique BlackBerry branded software. And that was their pitch. That was their most recent product offering and it just it doesn't isn't doing well. <laughs> yeah, I uh, guess
0: like um I don't even think it's like bashing on Blackberry or anything. It's just like what phone has done well other than Android and I, or iPhone. so it's I think it's a hard or like Android, I guess blessed by Google and um, iPhone. so anyway, I guess yeah, the Blackberry is an I, or an Android phone technically, but you know what I mean
1: yeah i don't I don't mind their move to Android, but it seems like it might be too little too late. yeah hey if, if if everything goes well, maybe five years from now, Verizon can buy them.
0: Oh man. <laughs> Good one, Marty. Now I see why you included this on our (laughs) roundup.
1: It was all to get to that joke. It was all for that joke. Um, Uh, Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, Snapchat has purchased a small startup called Scene, S-E-E-N-E, that works on uh, technology to let people take 3D selfies using their mobile phones. So, of course, there's speculation that that would be maybe an upcoming feature or plugin or something for Snapchat would be that you could take 3D selfies of yourself. Uh, What do you think about this, Victoria?
0: Um, So actually I think that the messaging on this is a little like editorialized. Like I, so I looked a little bit into this and I think like a 3D selfie itself is not super compelling. Right. But it's more that the technology to take an image or take some sort of video capture and create a 3D model of it is really interesting. Right. So like, even if the, um, output of the you know of the 3d model is not necessarily a selfie like I, I think it's kind of like uninteresting if you just think of like it's a 3d selfie well now that you have your face in 3d but it's more likely that they're going to use that 3d model to either apply an interesting filter or create more interesting animations or like have a 3D model of not a selfie but like some other object. Um, So I think like it makes sense. Like the technology is really interesting. And then like I said, um, even if you're not using it in 3D, having that 3D model is still like a very valuable thing.
1: Yeah it's kind of cool. And you know I'm not a big fan of most of the stuff Snapchat seems to be doing. Like I see a lot of people post little videos of themselves with like a dog ear. And a dog nose and a big tongue that sticks out, or you know, or just kind of like goofy face altering filters. Which I mean, that's fine, but that doesn't seem to be like changing the world. <laughs> it really, just seems kind of frivolous. But this could be neat. I don't know. We'll see. Give it yeah. a give it a, a chance.
0: Yeah. They're uh, well. What again? What's interesting is the their video that they link here um, doesn't actually have anything to do with selfies. It's like this. They explain it's much more than that, it's more about like sort of this VR interaction with like 3D objects and like real life
1: stuff. I will say, it does seem that this acquisition is in line with what Snapchat is. You know, I sometimes see these companies who acquire some other company and it's pretty hard to explain why the one has to do with the other, you know what I mean? Mm Like they'll buy a company that's sort of in tech and they're like, oh, we're going to branch into this. And it's like, oh, wait, why? Why would you buy PayPal or whatever? You know, it's like yeah. that has nothing to do with you. But this is very much in line with what Snapchat is like that. If they if they basically took this tech and baked it into Snapchat, that would improve Snapchat. So it seems like a smart acquisition in general.
0: Yeah, I think so. Like it, it's a like it's, I think this could be used for many things other than 3D heads. So
1: <laughs> it probably has some non-pornographic uses even.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> anyway. <laughs> OK, moving on. Um. <laughs> So next one, Facebook is shutting down its chat messenger service on their mobile website to try to get the mobile users to switch to the messenger app. So yeah, uh, you know, the most common way I think to use Facebook on your phone is to install a Facebook app. And then if you want to chat on your phone, you install the Facebook messenger app separately. They have split those apart at some point. Um, But a lot of users just use their mobile browser, the web browser, to go to facebook.com and they log in that way, and they they can chat that way. Or there's I think there's a messenger.com that you can go directly to if you want to chat. And that's being shut off for mobile users because they're trying to push everybody to start using the app and, and stay on the app. And um, I guess it doesn't sound very controversial on the surface, it just seems like there are a lot of users who don't want the app or can't install the app or whatever. Um, so it seems like a, a sort of a aggressive move to sort of push all those users to a different platform.
0: I feel like um i I can see many reasons why they would do this i kind of empathize with facebook and that like um i think it's a really hard problem to like um launch on a bunch of platforms and then you have one platform that like you don't have enough users to like justify um maintaining and then like also it's a really hard platform to um to develop on. Also, all your competitors in the space do not have a web presence, and that's not what most people are using. Like, I, I totally understand why they would want to push to um, app only. So, yeah. I, I I, think people forget the, or they don't, not, not forget, they just don't think of sort of the developer cost of, like, maintain, maintaining a website. So, um, I think it makes sense that they're doing it. Um, I think it'll probably simplify, like, I'm sure it simplifies everything. Like, why have two completely different experiences when probably very few people are actually using their, at like, their mobile web chat interface?
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And it's their platform. They can do what they want. They don't owe anybody an infinite web
0: Yeah, exactly. Version. Like, ho- also, I don't know what hostile means, but.
1: Well, also, um, it's it just shows, it continues to show that the web is a hard application platform that, you know, people talk about web APIs and JavaScript and all these things, React Native and React.js and all these different, I don't know, advances in ECMAScript, JavaScript. Oh, the web is getting so much better as an app development platform. But at the end of the day, they'd rather shut it off in this app and focus on their mobile apps instead because it's probably easier for them to have a coherent user experience that way.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that's a whole different thing that I feel like is not sufficient in a quick update. But, um Anyway, like I mean, they're not shutting off their mobile app, which is much a much more complicated app than their messenger app. Like the message, so I think it's mobile not, website. Exactly. Sorry, their mobile website. They're not shutting that off, or I guess it's a mobile web app, right? Like, um, but yeah, is this um, when you say app for yeah, mobile? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but
1: yeah, they're not giving up on mobile web. They're just this thing they've decided is an app thing.
0: Yeah. So I mean, would understand. Anyway, like it's. I understand. Like, it's not something that they could just maintain with zero cost, which I think is the tone of this article, at least um, on TechCrunch. So anyway, I'm I'm team Facebook on
1: this. (laughs) As an engineer. Yeah, it makes sense. You've you've been through experiences like this developing for all the different platforms.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um,
1: Uh, what's the next one, V? All
0: right. Our final one is uh, there's a new E-League uh, TV show on TBS. <laughs> I I didn't hear about this, but um, apparently there's like this video game. Is it a particular video game? I suppose Counter Strike video game League. Um, that is new. I, I don't know. This is Marty's. <laughs> this is <so laughs> uh, news. I thing. put
1: it in here and insisted that you intro it because I knew you would get such joy in explaining oh, it. Oh
0: man. Okay, I, I guess e-sports are a thing, so like professional video game players have mostly in the U.S. like been streaming stuff online, like and now there's an actual league. I I don't know, Marty. You have to <laughs> explain what this is about.
1: Well, it's just a TV show, like you said on TBS, that people compete on video games and they win money and prizes, and and uh, it's interesting. Uh, weren't you saying that you know this is pretty common in some other countries already?
0: Oh. Yeah, I mean, so, like, Korea has done this for many years with, like, StarCraft um, in particular, I suppose. So I remember, like, you know, many years ago when my Korean cousins were, like, 12, um, they would say things like, I want to be a professional um, video game player when I grow up, and, like... I remember I didn't know that they were serious. Like that was an actual position. Like that was an actual thing they could do because, like in Korea, like for years now, um, you could be a professional video game player and be on TV and like compete for money. So I guess the US is now um, doing similar things. Uh, So I I think the interesting point I would see on this is that like um, there's this sort of you know conversation about is TV going to be Deprecated essentially because of like the web and esports started purely on the web and purely like being streamed and like um there wasn't like a network you know you don't have to have a cable subscription or anything like that um, so I guess it's somewhat interesting to me that this thing that could have been completely untied to um, cable television uh, has gained legitimacy I suppose by being on TBS so. Yeah,
1: it's funny. It's a little bit like Amazon opening a brick and mortar bookstore. It's kind of like, wait, I thought the whole point of you was not to be in this medium, right?
0: Exactly. So I think it's a kind of interesting. Yeah,
1: but I do think there's a lot of people. I mean, I'm under 40, but there's a lot of people kind of maybe my age, maybe older than me, who just they don't they don't know anything about, you know, twitch.tv and video game streaming. And and like if it appears on TV, then it's like, oh this is broadcast? Oh, that must be new. You know? Well, so. I think
0: it's more like, um, I, I would actually think it's the other it's other bits, right? It's not the television aspect that's important, but it's sort of like the um, the people who know how to produce a television show, regardless of the format, probably the people who know what they're doing are still in traditional media. Um, anyway, like I, I guess it's, my guess is that like on Twitch TV or whatever, the production quality is not the same as like, you know, um, a, a normal... TV show or something. Versus like Netflix when they have the Netflix shows, like I think those work or Netflix only shows, I think that works because the production quality is equal usually or close to equal to like, you know, a full blown like television show. That would be my two cents, but.
1: Hey B I want to read you some of the names of the teams that are competing in the oh, e By the okay. way, they play Counter-Strike CSGO. It's a, it's like a 3D first person shooter game like Doom, Quake, Halo, that kind of game. Um, okay. Here are some of the teams competing, ready? The Renegades, The Ninjas in Pajamas, Luminosity Gaming, Envy Us, Echo Fox, Fnatic, The FaZe Clan, NRG Esports, Team Liquid, and Selfless. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> they all have cool nicknames and stuff, like Z and Credit Karma. Oh, wait, that's a company, sorry, that's a company. <laughs> Credit Karma. <laughs> I'm like Arby's. Wait, that's a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, so no, I, I don't mean to make fun of it, though. I think it's great. I think if you know, uh, video games are very mainstream now, and like a lot of people like to watch video games. That's not a weird thing. That's popular. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fun to watch people. I don't know if I like watching people play Counter Strike, but you know, whatever. Like watching people who are good at video games play them really well. It can be really fun. And uh, I think it's great that things like this are getting more legitimacy. Um, and I think it's just the start of there's going to be more things like this in the future. I think.
0: Yep. That's cool. All right,
1: so <laughs> I, I think we're done with our news quickie roundup segment. I think we mostly were quick about that. We were a little so. rambly, but not bad.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, so, yeah, let's so move I've, on to our technical or tech news discussion, I suppose.
1: Yeah, this well, let's, This is more like what we typically do. Let's pick a couple of stories from the week and talk about them in sort of more detail. Uh, what's our first story, B?
0: Okay, so a continuation of the Oracle versus Google case. Um, like right after we wrapped up recording for last week's podcast, um, the I guess jury f- favored or cited on Google side. I don't know, there's an official term for that, but basically Google won. Um, so uh, in other words, Android, the jury ruled that Android is fair use of the Java APIs. Um, so yeah, I think, um, so Google, or sorry, Oracle was seeking like $9 billion or up to $9 billion in like damages. And
1: um, and they it, got zero. <laughs> yeah.
0: So it's definitely going to appeal or they're definitely going to appeal this. Um, but I guess it's still an important win. I think the other interesting sort of fallout is, or not fallout per se, but I kind of enjoyed like reading the tweets and sort of the take on like this, um, on this case, we talked about it a bit last week about like following the trial, but, um, I think I can enjoy it more now that I know that Google won, <laughs> because <laughs> like, I think all this would just be so depressing if, uh, the jury ruled in favor of Oracle. So,
1: yeah. And I mean, you, you work for Google, so you're not the most unbiased person, but I think both of us, our interest in this case is more about fair use and not abusing intellectual property system to stifle innovation and, uh, you know, trying to be impartial. I think we both feel like it's best for computer science and tech that this is the outcome of the case. Like, yeah,
0: and I think, like, okay, so, like, you... Another thing that's interesting about this trial is, like all trials, you know, uh, this material is available for the public. And so if you actually look at Oracle's slides, as a person who understands this stuff, a lot of it is really misleading, right? Like, it's just as a nerd, you look at this stuff, and they are intentionally being misleading on this stuff, um, because they know that the jury's not going to know what it means. Like, they're focusing on the number of lines of code. Like, right. they copied, like, 11,000 lines of code. It's like, but they're APIs. So it does not matter. Like, it's irrelevant. The number of lines of code is completely irrelevant because they're all method headers. So it's like, it's just a silly case. Like, I, I think the um, the fact that it's a fair use case also doesn't make sense. Like, it, that's kind of, um, you know, was decided in a previous trial like whether or not APIs are even copyrightable and the I think this judge's initial ruling was that they wouldn't they shouldn't be, but right. then it was overturned. Um,
1: yeah that was interesting. So, so there is some notion that maybe it's possible to copyright an API. So it sounds like this case now is more about, well, this particular API, Oracle, has given access for people to re-implement it for free for years. Right. So it's more about the history of this API and how Oracle has has and and Sun before them have safeguarded it and, and treated it. You know, because that matters. They they've let other companies use and repeat and replicate and reimplement Java's APIs since the dawn of Java with no expectation of financial compensation or any licensing agreements or anything. So, I guess the the notion of like. Can't copyright an API. That's out the door for the moment. But at least in this case, it's like, look, you can't just let people play with this for 20 years and then decide, hey, somebody played with it and made a bunch of money. Let's go shake them down for half of their money or whatever.
0: Right. And it's just like it's very confusing, like from a technical perspective of like, I, I just don't understand how they can be like, they copied, a you know, 11,000 lines of code, but that's the exact purpose of an API is to keep it standard. <laughs> like so it's just like right. really I, I just don't see how you can be an engineer who understands what an API is and be on Oracle's side. I mean like they even had in their in their testimony they showed what is fair use of a an API. They had a painting of code. Like, that's what they said was fair. Like, this is an actual thing that happened in their trial. Like, Marty's giving me a little look. But this actually happened in the trial. Was They said, like, well, this is... Like, you can see their slide deck of their argument. And they're like, well, fair use. By by fair use, we mean something like, you know, you creatively took this um, the text for this API and you put it in a painting. Like, so it's just like ludicrous. This is a ludicrous argument. Um, they, I, I think I alluded to earlier, they sort of like copy pasted um, these quotes from sub like emails. Oh, maybe I, maybe I said that off the podcast, but like um, by and en- like engineers who would say like, you know, well, I'm not a lawyer, but here's my you know, here's my engineering opinion. As as nerds do, sometimes we just talk about things that we have no expert opinion on, as we do on this podcast. Like, <laughs> we just sort of like, here's my take. And so they took emails like that and said like, well, these engineers knew what they were doing. Like, it just, all this was super manipulated, like manipulated um, out of context documents. I, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous. I think technologically, like the, the, either completely don't understand what an API is or they're intentionally trying to mislead the jury on like, I don't know, on what actually Google did. Um, So I think from that standpoint, I'm just like, have no, I don't know. I I would have been very, very sad if this had gone a different way.
1: Yeah, yep. But the jury made the right decision. And, you know, uh, we did, as you say, we did talk about the case a lot on our last episode, just kind of the, the nuts and bolts of people testifying and what they said. And we laughed at some of the bad analogies people made about APIs. And so uh, if you haven't listened to episode 22, our last episode, maybe jump in there and and listen, if you want to hear more about the details of the case, um, go check those out. But yeah, I think we're both happy with this outcome.
0: Yes, Um, I thought there was something else I was going to say about it, (laughs) other than just like, uh, I'm so angry that they, the fair use painting, I can't believe that was real. Anyway.
1: yeah. Yeah, you know, it is scary. I don't know. I I mean, I can sympathize with a content creator who, who feels like their content was taken from them. Like, I've I've written books, you know, and then what happens is somebody just pirates the book as a PDF, puts it on the internet, and now all these people are downloading it and torrenting it. And maybe there's some sense that, like, that's no big deal because the publisher is this big company, so stick it to the man, you know, let's go pirate And these books are overpriced, so let's go right. pirate them. But it's like, you know, I mean... I mean, I'm not, I'm not impoverished here, you know, but I, I still don't have enough money to afford a house, you know, and I'm trying to make money so I can, you know, do that. And I worked for years on this book and then people take it basically. They don't pay for it. And it's right. like, I don't mind if you don't buy my book, but don't like, you know, take it without paying for it and then use it. And, and like I have my own students taking my own classes who are asking me like, hey, can I use this pirated PDF of your book on the final as a study guide? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> are you really asking me that? So, I mean, I can sympathize with people who feel like I made something and somebody sort of took it from right. me. And they're denying me some some compensation or something that I should have as the creator of this content. I can sympathize with that. But it's, you know, not to add another bad analogy to the pile of bad analogies that we've heard <laughs> in the trial, but like it'd be like if I gave away all of my table of contents on the website for free and then somebody else, you know, made a book with a similar table of contents and then I tried to sue them or something. You know, it's just kind of like... And if I'd for years been letting people, you know, write books with that kind of table of contents and encouraging them and I don't know, it's just, it's just like you can't give something away and encourage people to take it and build on it and and then, and then go after them later, you know, and say, actually, or I want money from you. You Right.
0: Like, and I think it's sort of like, I don't know, the spirit of open source as well was like, they knew what they were doing if they made the Java APIs open source. Like I think there's just this understanding that it's, I think with a lot of sort of open source software, there's this kind of like culture of we're creating software and we think having it open and accessible to other people is going to be better for technology. Like, it's not about like, I want this for, you know, my own, I want to make money off of this. I want this because I think I can sell it or something. Like, I think it's generally you have open source stuff because you're like, I think this is going to sort of... um, be useful to other people. I want other people to contribute to it. Um, I am not tied to it. And I, I know that's not like a sort of legally binding statement there, just that's a cultural thing. But I think it's sort of overwhelming evidence to me just saying like, this isn't like, this was, you know, something that they were selling from the get-go. It wasn't like something that they closed source and maybe sold to Google or something. Like, I think it's very different. Um Versus like a book or something where you explicitly are selling your book and people are stealing it from you, like it's sort of like, I don't know. I I think that anyone who created an API would have in an, an open source API would not be surprised at all. They would actually be happy if other people were using and re-implementing their APIs because that's the whole point of them. Like so. Anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah. 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 I agree. Um, and we talked about it before, like Android has helped Java. A- Java is more vibrant and more in use and more healthy because Android is around. So right. I think Oracle should maybe spend less time trying to sue people and more time leveraging that and saying, hey, Java's getting a boost here. We should like leverage that and do some other cool stuff with Java. Maybe we should develop some things that run on Android. Maybe we should partner with, I don't know, like just, you know, Yeah if they want to make money here, there was money to be made in the past and there's still money to be made in the future. And it just seems like they don't know any way to innovate and, and use technology and, and savvy to make money. They just know how to litigate to make money on this particular product. Oh, yeah.
0: well. Anyway, yeah, so like I said, the stuff's available online. So you can like, um, you can actually see, like if you Google for like Oracle slide deck for their co- closing statement or something, you can see these like funny, like graphics, like, I don't know, um, hyperbolic, f- slide deck so if you're interested in like um, very large hyperbolic slide decks you can find them online for your entertainment um
1: (laughs) okay well so that wraps up the google versus oracle case Uh, if it appeals and if that goes to another round we'll talk about it again in the future maybe Uh, let's move on to the next one so this one was fun uh facebook uh, ceo mark zuckerberg had a lot of his online accounts hacked this week uh some online group, uh, what was the name of the group, Our Mine Team, got into his account and uh, posted messages on them. And this was his his Facebook and Instagram accounts, his uh, Twitter account, his LinkedIn account. I think the original leak seems to have been because LinkedIn got hacked or breached. Mm. And a bunch of users' information got spilled out. And these these hackers got that information, like usernames and passwords right. and stuff. And among the users they got a password for was Mark Zuckerberg. And they discovered that he was using the same password on all of these different social media websites. (laughs) Way to go, Zach. Um, and my favorite part is that his password was da, 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 D a, (laughs) D a, D a, -A. (laughs) best password ever. And so, yeah, they used that password to break into his accounts on a bunch of sites and post a bunch of messages as him. (laughs) And it's a little bit embarrassing for him. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think uh, so, you know, it's a little funny. I mean, I I certainly I wouldn't want anything malicious to happen. I wouldn't want anybody to like take his money or I don't know, steal his identity. You know, I don't I don't want people to I I don't want to make light of that. But it does sort of raise other questions like, uh, you know, it's not good to use the same password everywhere. Right. I mean, especially if it's a horrible password like da da da, which is like not secure at all. (laughs) Um, now, I mean, I don't want to be too uh, specific here, but you know, I don't use the same password everywhere. I use a certain, let's say, substring that I have in common on a lot of my passwords, but then I have some modifications to it depending on what site I'm on and stuff. And so I try to make sure that if you just took the exact same password string and just put it somewhere else, it wouldn't work. That's a goal I try to have for a lot right. of different accounts. Or if I'm gonna use the same password, sometimes I have some dumpy accounts that I just use for stupid things that I don't have very safe passwords on, but those are like not attached to my identity and they don't have any important information or finance in them. And you know, like I just, I don't use the same password everywhere. I don't wanna use the same password everywhere. Um, and uh, on top of that, I don't use dumb passwords like dot. Oh man! I don't know, it just blows my mind that this uh, person would do that. Um, there's There's also, there's a lot of other things people do to keep their passwords safe, like these password manager software. There's one called Blast Pass that's pretty popular. I don't know, like what what's your uh, what's your reaction to this story, Victoria? Did you go immediately change all of your passwords? <laughs>
0: um, I feel bad for Mark Zuckerberg. Like I think that I don't I don't think it's dumb. Like I, I think people are like sort of pointing the fingers, like wow that was so stupid. I'm like I totally empathize with that. Like I think passwords are broken, right? Like it's just how can you possibly have a unique password to everything? And like in terms of yeah it's a dumb password, okay. But, like, how many people actually have... Like, I I think security's hard, right? And, like, even, like, with your, you know, substring technique... I I mean, I do something similar, so I'm not saying, like, I'm great. What I'm saying is that I could totally see myself not doing exactly this, but something very similar, because if you get that substring from my password, suddenly my password becomes as trivial as um, Mark Zuckerberg's, right? So it's sort of like, eh. I think... um, I think it sucks. I, I bet, like, what... Well, I, I I wonder how much Mark Zuckerberg uses Twitter or Pinterest, like, because that's the other thing. Like, you, you create a password, maybe it's dumb, and you're like, I just want to create it right now. I'm going to change it later. But then you use your phone, and it saves there, and then you don't remember, or like you use your, you know, you use Chrome or something, and just auto saves your password. You don't remember that this is your crap password that like you're supposed to change later. Like, I don't know. I I feel bad for Mark Zuckerberg. I, I could totally understand that happening to me, especially like my LinkedIn. Like, when's when's Mark Zuckerberg on LinkedIn? Like, <laughs> is he looking for new jobs? Like,
1: anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I don't want to do too much victim blaming. Like, if somebody gets their house robbed, we right. don't say, "Oh, what a crappy lock they had on their front door. What an idiot!" Ha ha ha. Right. Like, so, I mean, it is unfortunate. I do think people should be careful and and be safe and use good good passwords and stuff. But I want to follow up on something you said a second ago. You you were kind of saying like passwords are sort of broken, right? And. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. I mean, we just, we're so cultured to to think of passwords as the security system for online everything, sites and apps and everything. But uh, more and more people kind of don't trust them. Or I guess what I would say is they're part of a larger system of authentication and, and uh, identity verification. Like a lot of sites and places now make you do sort of a two-factor login where you, you have to type a password, but then you also have to you know, take a text on your phone and then give them a code from there. Yep. Or like some things do biometric or thumbprint, fingerprint stuff, um, face recognition, uh, little little dongles or things you plug into your computer sometimes or little uh, card readers that you plug. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, com- my wife works uh, at Microsoft and um, if she wants to connect to the corporate network remotely, she has to take this little card reader and plug it into her laptop. That's pretty common. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe the big picture here is that passwords are dumb and that, uh, you know, we shouldn't rely on passwords as a sole form of access control.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yep, I agree. Like I think that, um, we talked about it before on the podcast, but like I almost always opt into um, two-factor because uh, two-factor authentication be that, like usually it's text message or something with like a number that you add in. Um, That way I can use a dumb password and not feel bad about it, so I think going in that direction where you don't have to have a strong password um, is a better direction than, like, I mean, because it's just, I mean, no one's following the rules, right? Like, ideally, you would have, like, a strong, incomprehensible, long password, unique password on every single, you know, account that you have. And that's just, people aren't doing that. So, um, <laughs> like, I mean, again, like if it was like his finance or something, I would understand, or like his Facebook, that would be super embarrassing. But it's like these, probably these rando accounts that he never really cared about. Um, he has a dumb password for, uh eh. <laughs> I could see myself doing that as well. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Seems like we're, we're sort of poised. We're starting to not be as into passwords. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to say passwords are dying, but <laughs> Password as sole method of authentication is kind of dying.
0: Yep. Um, yeah, I guess there is an interesting like, uh, I don't know, I guess I shouldn't like read too much into it. But I, I wonder if Mark Zuckerberg, were so, like, does does anyone look at this and think Mark Zuckerberg is incompetent as a CEO? And I think of like, man, it's lucky that it's like a I'm kind of relieved. It's like, oh, it's a white male CEO. not like, a you know, or I don't know what he is for Facebook, but um, like, it's a... If it were like a woman or like a person of color, I just feel like this would be different than just a funny joke. Um, oh, interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. Like, yeah, if it were somebody from a different demographic, people would say, "Oh, that's typical for that group to do something dumb like that." Or, mean, or like, yeah, or they this is say it this that is, way, or, yeah, like this is proof. I knew
0: they like I knew they were incompetent. Like, I don't think anyone's, or I don't think you know Mark Zuckerberg is incompetent for this, and I don't think people are kind of. I don't think that's a tone of the story around it. It's just sort of like a, ha ha ha. Mark Zuckerberg too has bad passwords. Like what are the people? You know, like I don't know. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a good point. The um, the sort of default respect we give to people based right. on our conceptions of them. So. Yeah. Anyway, poor Zuck. Change your password, Zuck. <laughs> Turn on two factors, Zuck. Come on, get on that. What's um, our next uh, tech news discussion topic?
0: All right, so um, the, let's see, so like the Scratch programming tool, I guess, yeah, it's like a sort of game or program or something to teach kids how to uh, code, Um, there is a Powerpuff Girls version of that coming out, so um, yeah, like basically I think it's, uh, so Scratch is sort of this long time, um, is it, would you call it a game, Marty, or? How would you like I guess environment like it's kind of like
1: a yeah it's like a language and a set of libraries and an editing environment for executing the programs um
0: I thought there was like puzzles or is that or am I wrong I don't think I've ever used scratch but
1: it's it's very visual you use these coding blocks where you drag and drop syntax chunks so that you can never have illegal programs and then you can sort of tweak them and change them like if you drag and drop a for loop block You can fiddle with it and change the dials for how many repetitions it does and stuff, you know. So it's kind of like very visual programming that can't have syntax errors. And most everything you're coding involves the movement and the behavior of sort of two-dimensional characters on the screen, like little animals or little cars or little things like that. So it's meant to be for younger people. It's more motivating and fun and easier, and they can't mess it up in as many ways. And so a lot of people are into Scratch kind of at the K-12 through maybe more like K through eight level. I mean, some some high school students use it too, but it's thought of as being more accessible to young students. And so it sounds like this is just a set of um, skins and add-on packages that use Scratch with these cartoon characters, right?
0: Yes. Um, so yeah, there's like a Powerpuff Girls um, version <laughs> that's going to happen. So it's like a partnership between like, I guess, MIT Scratch people and uh, Car- Cartoon Network who owns the Powerpuff Girls. Um, I think that's amazing, um, <laughs> because honestly, like, I think so, like, Scratch, the there are characters or whatever that you can code with Scratch, but um, having it be these cartoon characters, I think significantly changes like the or can significantly like sway someone's interest level in this so I I think a lot of times again as engineers we can think of these things as interchangeable like we can say like well this is just a stupid skin like how is that going to make a difference but I think it does like uh even myself okay so Powerpuff Girls is like the sort of the you know latest um Skin, I suppose that Scratch is going to get, but the previous one was um, this cartoon show called We Bear Bears, which coincidentally I have recently discovered. This cartoon show um, about bears—it's <laughs> really cute. <laughs> I don't know. I um, had a Facebook post about it. It's a great cartoon show about like these bears, and they're like in San Francisco, and they—I um, don't know—they like like bubble tea and trying to be humans very cute show but anyway point is uh, <laughs> scratch has this a uh, like special partnership with like wee bear bears and so like people are like making their little um uh like scratch wee bear bears like stories um on this platform and like I, I just said i never checked out scratch before and even i am going to like check it out cuz i'm like oh wait i can program the bears that sounds interesting to me versus <laughs> like pro- programming some like random animals i don't know i'm like oh i could create a bear stack I want to create a pair stack, even though I realized the exact same thing as like, you know, any other thing. Like, I think it does. The characters involved can really have a huge impact on interest.
1: Yeah. And and I think it's cool that they pick a cartoon that would appeal to young women as well. A lot of these things are like, you know, Star Wars or whatever. And I mean, not that Star Wars doesn't appeal to women, but just it sort of feels like a boy first model a lot of the time. And so I think it's cool when they pick a variety of different characters and shows to use so that they can get a more broad audience, a diverse audience to, to look at it. Um, and yeah, you're right. I, I do think if these things are done well, they really do draw a lot of people's attention. I've got a niece who's nine and it blew my mind a year or so ago. She was goofing around on her iPad and I'm just like, what are you playing? And she said, I'm doing the hour of code. <laughs> I was like, you're doing code? What the heck? You know, <laughs> I was blown away. I just didn't think she was ready for that or whatever. And and I was like, oh, is your teacher teaching you about that? And she was she was like, no, I just thought it was a fun game. You know, she, right. she didn't think, she, didn't think she was learning anything. She was just like, oh, this is cool. I can make these robots move around or I can make these animals move around. And, and like, it, it wasn't like, oh, this is my homework and they're making me do this. It was more like, oh, cool, this is a fun game to play.
0: Right, and exactly. Yeah, I like these things. Yeah, um, so it reminds me of another thing, which is... Um, so I think also when teaching, like, in general... Um, I have learned that the analogy and metaphor you use it can sometimes make a huge difference to understanding, which I guess is an obvious thing. But like, um, so I gave a talk before about uh, memory and how memory is laid out in, um, you know, how basically like uh, talking about um, complexity and array operations and how memory is laid out like an array essentially, and so. My initial uh, metaphor, like, the one that struck to me was, like, um, celebrity shoe collections. Um, so if you've ever seen, like, a celebrity shoe collection, they have, like, uh, these giant, like, bookshelves of shoes, essentially. And then they have this problem where if, like, they get too many shoes or something, they have to, like, how are they going to, you know, let's say that they have this. Giant book, uh, this bi- giant like bookshelf or something full of full of shoes, and it's completely, completely, continuously full. And like suddenly they get their new pair of shoes. Like, well, what do they have to do? Um, well, they have to probably like find a place for their new shoe and shift over all their old shoes or whatever. Anyway, I was trying to make like an uh, array analogy. Um, and I told this to my friend who was a straight man <laughs> who like had no idea what I was talking about. Like, wait, what do you choose? Like, what is this? He's mean? like, wait,
1: you have more than one. <laughs> yeah. Why do you have more than one? You only have two feet.
0: And so I changed the analogy to liquor. I was like, oh, OK, well, um, you, ha- I-, I knew this friend had a liquor cabinet, like a very full um liquor cabinet. I was like, well, OK, it's kind of like your li- liquor shelf. Like if you had a new bottle of like vodka or something, how are you going to like? put it in your shelf and like that problem and he was like oh yeah that makes way more sense so Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of like it's the same analogy but just the actual physical items you use can make a huge difference like there's sort of the classic complaints about like physics textbooks and they always use sports analogies and car analogies and like you know oh well the trajectory of this baseball and like just like these things are just subtle like you wouldn't think that like I know that logically it shouldn't make a difference, but, like, just swap the noun with something different, and it can completely change, like, a person's interest level and understanding of the topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I know. I sure tuned out when you were talking about shoes a second ago. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Exactly. I'm just teasing (laughs) teasing you,
1: but I know what you mean.
0: Yeah. Like, what if everything was done in terms of Powerpuff Girls? Um, every analogy was made In terms of Powerpuff Girls That's why I get annoyed When like Every computer science analogy They try to use like I don't know A lot of times They'll try to use like Science fiction Or Video game references Or something i it's just like ah. It's fine to use it occasionally But like Having diversity In your um, Analogies Like There's like the sort of ambient effects of inclusion. And then there's the actual understanding. I think it really does affect someone's understanding. of like, this is a game or a, you know, this is a video game that you've internalized already. And so yes, this metaphor helps you versus like you're talking about, like you're giving an analogy to something that like you've never heard of before. So no, that analogy isn't going to help. Anyway, I'm done rambling on this. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings on these topics.
1: I was amazed you didn't go in deeper on the bears cartoon that you liked so much. I thought you were gonna talk about that more.
0: <laughs> well, so they, it sounds so they have, like you're like, disappointed that I'm not talking about my favorite bear cartoon.
1: Well, so like they have a they have a Korean girl as their friend and then they go get bubble tea with her. Is that like what else? Give me some okay, more so about So
0: basically show. I'm I really like bears and so it's a very I mean you just have to see it like in that it's very cute. They have a very cute bear drawing style. Um they're all like brothers and they have adventures. And so it's like one that in a in and of itself is like oddly um, customized to me, but not only that, they have like um, you know a couple of additional guest stars on their. Um, so those are the three main characters, but there's some other like secondary characters. So one of them is a girl named Chloe, and not only is it a girl named Chloe, she's Korean. And I'm half Korean, so it's a Korean girl named Chloe with glasses, and it's super cute because they have like her. They'll show her parents sometimes, and they'll speak to Chloe in Korean, and they don't bother like translating or doing subtitles or anything. Um, do you
1: understand it? Like, have you listened to it?
0: <laughs> I mostly understand it. They speak really fast too. Like, they're not playing around with their Korean. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, it's basic stuff usually. So uh, I would say I understand about ninety percent of it. Sometimes they, not that they have like all this Korean dialogue, but um, they're so
1: this this show is like what you wish your real life were. Oh basically. man, <laughs>
0: <Right>. <laughs> I know exactly. But um, anyway, there's just like a lot of like nuances that um, are pretty cute about it. Like, yeah they get the like even though the parents have a minor part they kind of get it's clear that the creators understand what asian parents are like um do the do the parents oh my constantly, god don't do say constantly... something racist for
1: me i'll <laughs> oh, fine i'll just stop <laughs>
0: okay i'm um, sure they
1: have i'm sure they have very reasonable expectations for their child and are totally non-judgmental about her and they her are disease,
0: right? they are like it's okay. okay it's more i mean okay I it's more say. the things like she has a slumber party, and they like pack, you know panic, and the, their accent is a good accent. like stuff like that that matters like they they can still speak English perfectly well. It's not like garbage English. it's like some anyway there's there was thought put into this like they're it's not so artificial that they're going to have two you know Korean parents with perfect English, but it's not like insulting. so like little nuanced things like that um.
1: You know the thing I can never figure out about you, Victoria? So you love bears, which are like ravenous killing machines, and then you're afraid of birds.
0: (laughs) Oh, Marty. There's a different... Okay, like, that's a totally different topic, but there's a difference between cartoon bear and real-life bear. Just as there's a difference between cartoon bird and real-life bird. (laughs) Like, real-life bird attacking you is terrifying. Versus real- and real-life bear attacking is terrifying.
1: You almost said, versus real-life bear is cuddly. (laughs) I I heard you, you almost said that.
0: Oh man, I do like real-life bears. Anyway, um...
1: Okay, Okay. Wow. the other that thing... Was, okay, wait, wait, wait. wait. Oh, now that you've brought more? me on this topic, yeah. okay, the other the, thing that's... The listeners just skip this part. <laughs> Go on, no, the first. other
0: thing that's relevant to technology that's cute about this show is that they incorporate a lot of technology in sort of a cute way as well.
1: So, like... Tell me, tell me the bears are on growler.com. Tell me they on... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> tell me. Come on.
0: No, um, no. but, yeah. like, they use, like, their laptops and their phones. They all have, like, little cell phones, and they'll make, like, little jokes about... YouTube and internet videos and I don't know different technology. So it's it's kind of a background thread of like they're in San Francisco and they're using technology. So it's cute.
1: Do Only, they have a bunch yeah. of like math and CS puns in the show?
0: No, it's not like that. It's oh. that they they're they're clients of technology.
1: I was oh. hoping that the white bear would be like, I'm going to use my GPS. I hope it uses polar coordinates. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, well, this is why I don't write for a kids' show. <laughs>
0: um, no, it's a great show, though. It's only twelve-minute episodes too, so you can get them get through them quickly.
1: You've clearly done your homework on this show. I love okay, this check show. Out. Why do they call it? Why do they call it We Bear Bears? We B A R E B E A R S. We Bear Bears. Why do they call it that?
0: Um, I think. I'm actually not totally sure. So it's it's based on this online comic um, that's called Three Bear Bears, um, and I think they're just like they don't have clothes on, so they're bear. Oh. Yep. And I, I think Three Bear Bears made sense. I think We Bear Bears is just a little friendlier. I don't know. That's my guess. They should
1: definitely be on Growler.com then. Oh my god, maybe. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's move on. Okay. So uh, for our last bullet point here. We want to talk about an article, a a piece that was written on medium.com by a guy named Alberto Brandolini, a software engineer. And the name of the article is The Rise and Fall of the Dungeon Master. And I mean, just as a quick summary, the article is basically about a a project, a, a coding project, where maybe the original author of the software is still part of the project and maybe it's become a, a company or it's grown, there's more people working on it now. And you know, that person knows the software deeply, they've worked on it for longer than anyone, they've worked on it for years, they've probably written most of the code or at least a large chunk of the code. And they're sort of a dependency, like if anything goes wrong, if anything's broken, if there's any huge decisions that need to be made, that person kind of has to be in on them because they're just too core, too important to the project to not be involved. And all the other developers are kind of seen as being subservient. Um, to that person and this article is basically saying that uh, that is an anti-pattern in software development that it's bad for there to be a dungeon master and that this, this article is to try to sort of put a name to this and denounce it as being bad and sort of talk about some reasons why uh, why it's bad uh, so we just we just wanted to talk about it and talk about like you know have we worked on projects that had a dungeon master have we been a dungeon master do we agree or disagree with the article this sort of stuff so what's right. your what's your general reaction to this uh, idea, Victoria? Have you encountered this sort of thing?
0: Uh, yes and no, I think uh, so. My f- quick take is basically that I think that he has definitely um, identified a problem. And I like that he you know has described it well. Um, I think this is a pattern. Um, I don't think it's necessarily an anti-pattern, and I also don't think his solutions make sense in anything but a giant company, um, because, like, he's talking about, like, oh, well, you know, you can, uh, so I, I think uh, maybe to give a little bit more background, there some of the things he talks about, like, being bad about, like, having this person who, it's like, you know the code too well in some ways, and if, we've talked about this at Google, too, about, like, sometimes there's, like, a project or something where it's, like, there's when one person is required for expertise on software, like for the sorts of things he's talking about, like they always have to be looped in on a code review. They always have to be sort of like um, asked about for technical decisions and whatnot. So if, we're, if we cut out the project, like the sort of product perspective of it, of it and talk purely about like the, um, the technical architecture, um, at Google, if there is a situation like that, it is a sign that the code or the tests are unhealthy, right? Because ideally, you have code that you could, um, I, I think another thing, another metric people have talked about is the bus, like the bus rule or something, like if this yeah. person got hit by a bus, what would happen, right? Like sort of a you know, dark anal- or dark like um, mental exercise, but it's sort of like you shouldn't have that one point of failure, especially one that's so core, and it's more a sign that if If there is a person that's, like, really integral to the technical um, health of the code, like, you basically, you want your code to be, like, intern-proof in that, let's say that, okay, of course, I, I... You know, seasoned engineer would never make a bug or never write a bug or make a mistake in your code, but an intern who you know, uh, and of course I'm being facetious, but like you know, an intern who has no idea what they're doing, they're just trying to make the first code changes, um, they might do something totally crazy in the code right, and ideally you would have a test suite that would catch even the craziest things and so like um, you wouldn't have to manually test it or something to verify that it worked, you wouldn't have to manually test everything, Um, you have that strong test case. So I think that if you have a dungeon master sort of situation at Google or some other large competent uh, tech company, they would say like ah that's an engineering problem because no one person like so code code review should not be that important to keep the um work workingness of your code, right? Like assuming you have competent good engineers, like you shouldn't have code reviews gate keeping this. And I think um that's not quite the point of this article. They they kind of say like well you should like if you are a dungeon master then you should let go of your project and let someone else take care of it. And I think that's just not really practical. Like I think that's a very much like a big company mindset of like, oh, why don't you just switch teams? You know, like mm-hmm. you're you're taking care of this project. Um, surely there's another person who can do just as good of a job. Why don't you? Um, why don't you just try a different company or something? It's just like I don't think that makes sense. I think more the like, why don't you have test cases so that you can scale yourself? Makes more sense. Like focus on testing. That's how you grow. And and I know plenty of people who um, like have worked on Chrome per se, and they used to be sort of the all knowing everyone on Chrome because it used to be like a three person project many years ago. But as the team has grown, the way that they scaled the code base sensibly is that they had uh, strong coding standards. they had really st- like they trained people of how to code review and what the standards are. and like, um, they have a really strong test suite. Like those are sort of the more engineering ways of getting around this problem that I don't think this article addresses.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I found this article really hit home for me because uh, I built a product called Practice It at University of Washington, which was like a web-based system where you could submit code, you know, it's, it's to help students learn and practice how to code. So they could, they could be uh, given little coding problems like write a method that does this, write a method that takes these parameters and returns this value and the student could try to type in the code and they could submit it to a server it would be tested and tell them if they solved it properly. So it's meant for like drilling and practicing for like introductory CS students like the ones that I have in, in my classes. So I spent, I don't know, four or five years working on the thing off and on as a side project and I built it and I wrote it using technology that was sort of mostly modern at the time. And then over the years, especially with the way the web goes, has kind of become out of date and some of the code is kind of icky and I wrote it all myself and I wrote that when I was at Washington as an instructor and then I left UW, now I work at Stanford and uh, since I come to Stanford, I worked on it a little bit more and now uh, I made a new project kind of based on it and stuff and basically the current state of the project is that I've got a couple other people, uh, some of whom work at University of Washington still who uh, work on it with me and so now we have a shared GitHub and we're code reviewing each other And but I'm, I'm totally the dungeon master, like I'm the one who worked on the project from the start, and these other guys, uh, they're, they're brilliant, and they're really good developers, and they sometimes want to, like, pull the project in some new directions, like, let's add React.js, let's add uh, REST API, let's make it run on a cloud, you know, scalable server infrastructure. I mean, these are good things, but they're, they're, uh, they're heavy-duty re-architectures mm-hmm. and refactors of the app. And I'm sometimes kind of the old man in the way saying, I don't know about that. Or I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, there's kind of, I think they sometimes probably, I don't want to speak for them, but they probably sort of feel like, ah oh, we got to, we got to convince the old man that that we should do this thing, you know, because he's the one who really is the owner of this thing or or the boss or the the gatekeeper of it or whatever. And so it is interesting, like, you know, I think both sides have had to compromise. Like, I've had to let go a little bit of like what I think the app is or how I think it should be built or whatever and they've had to let go of, like, maybe they have some cool ideas that I push back against pretty strongly. And I think overall we're working together really well. But I, I say that, you know, I, I recognize that I am the dungeon master. And I do think that sometimes my involvement is really important and helpful for the project. But I also sort of know that in some ways projects become more nimble when they aren't beholden to the the person who, who built the old thing that now needs a lot of... Uh, work, you know.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I think there's a lot of subtleties in this situation that I don't think is really well addressed in this article. Like I, I okay, another thing is I I think this is written with the baseline assumption that the code is not very good, which I don't know if the person realized they're making this assumption, but, like, so, like, they say something in the beginning that's, like, um, the Dungeon Master, like, the net result is that for every change, uh, the Dungeon Master must be involved. He's the only one able to guide developers across the minefield. And that's not how I describe code, right? Like, I don't think that you're, if you're describing your code as a minefield, I know that's not really what he means by that, but it's, like, Again, your code—if it's well engineered, even if it's using old technology—well-written code is not going to be like, "Oh, don't touch that." Like, it shouldn't be that hard to edit your code. Like, I know that's an idealist-like way of looking at code, but I—if you're—if you have good engineers, like you, they should be able to read your code and figure out basically what it does. So I think that like there's kind of multiple problems here, right? Like, because I, I also think. Um, Okay, assuming you have well-written code and you are doing things in a particular paradigm, you have a way of doing things, um, I think it's really important to enforce coding standards. Like he's saying things like later, like he's um, he's like, what do you do if you're the dungeon manager? You should, you know, let it go. Let let people experiment with their code base. Let's, um, they should try different things. And yeah, they're going to do some, some things wrong. Yeah, they're going to waste their time a bit, but they're going to learn. And I'm kind of like, well, what is the point of their contributions? Is the point that you want to develop these people as engineers? If so, okay, I can understand that. But is the point to, like, are you getting, like, a person for three months? And the point is for them to contribute to your project. Like, I think if you're trying to get someone to contribute to your project, having a, like, strict coding standards is good. And is sort of necessary for your project to grow. So I I think that, like... This whole like oh you shouldn't have a, a one point of failure. It's kind of like yes and no. I think that like having strict rules and policies about what you can and can't do in code. At least at Google, that has shown time and time again to be sort of not just helpful but like essential to the project not becoming a mess. So I kind of think this has been i don't know it it just seems to be like advice that is coming from like a place of like the underlying assumption of like oh yeah you're gonna have kind of crappy code but code is just you know code is poorly written so (laughs) you're gonna have unnecessary things but that's fine you're gonna learn from it like i'm being a little harsh on this but like that's kind of the tone that i heard from it um
1: yeah well um, i i thought the i thought he did a decent job of he was talking about both sides of it like I mean, he he is saying the Dungeon Master is an anti-pattern, which you're not totally agreeing with, but I sort of read it as like, maybe for me, because I feel like I am a Dungeon Master, I think it's good to hear these kind of things for me, because I don't totally agree that I'm a harm to my own project, but it's important for me to remember, like, hey, you know, uh, a project can move on, like, if I did get hit by a bus, this project could actually move on fine, and you need to sometimes let go of control when you work with a bunch of people. And that can be hard to do if you worked on something a lot by yourself. And now you're starting to work on it with other people. That's a change in the dynamics. And it's just really important to think about the other side of that change when you can only really feel it from your own side of it. So I don't yeah. know. I think that's a that's a good it's a good reminder. But also I wanted to counter one thing you said. You, you said that like, well, not all code is bad. And this article seems to imply that all the code the Dungeon Master wrote would be bad code or something like that. And I guess what I would say is, yeah, you're right. Not all code is bad, but a lot of code is bad. So, um, or not even just bad, bad, but just has quirks, has pockets of code that aren't well-tested or aren't perfectly designed or aren't super well-documented. Most code has some of these problems in it somewhere. And so uh, I would say it's more common for a piece of code to have its flaws than not.
0: Yeah, but again, I would say that then you should focus on testing because, like, um, that is true and that's not true. Like, I think at at a company like Google or Facebook or whatever, they actually have, like, they have the resources such that you can test every aspect of the product. Um, And I think it makes sense, you know, you're describing, like, a project that is mostly a one-person effort with a couple people, which I think also, you know, they're kind of describing as well. Um, But I think the way that you scale from a small project is not, again, with that assumption of, like, well, you know, code's always going to have bugs, and we should have, like, ways of avoiding it. It's, like, No, once you get to that stage, you need to mature your code base by adding tests and things like that, like focusing, that should be the next thing. So, um, I I mean, like, I I just, I disagree with a couple of these things really strongly. Um, So, okay, here's another paragraph that I completely disagree with. Um, Blah, blah, blah. Like, so it's saying restart the project. So this is in his solutions. It's like, um, start modeling with entirely new tools instead. Look for different implementations maybe just because the original one is boring. <laughs> Software development is learning, and that's where the fun is. I completely disagree with that. Like if yeah, you want- that wa- paragraph sucks. It's so dumb. Like, Okay, anyway. So Re-implementing
1: that's why a project from scratch is a bad idea, almost always.
0: Uh, like, so that's why I'm just kind of like not really trusting the tone of this article, because I'm like, if you're doing that in your code, like you're like, yeah, I'm just gonna re-implement this for funsies, and you're cool with other people doing that, I just don't trust that you're writing good code. Like. Anyway, I'm probably it's, reading feel, too much. Like it.
1: It feels like he worked on a project with a dungeon master on it. And <laughs> yeah, mad. yeah. You know, he's like pissed off. <laughs>
0: yeah. Why aren't you letting me just like you know, kind of trying this out with a different like?
1: Just let me slap a bunch of Node.js plugins on this thing. It'll be great. Yeah. Um, like
0: learning's the fun part. Anyway.
1: Well, like, you know, you know what? Like so, um, in 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 my project, uh, the the other uh, developers who were working on it. Sometimes they would say, hey, why don't we add this? Why don't we add this tool or this technology? And why don't we convert this to this, you know? And I would sometimes push back, and sometimes I would be up for it or whatever. But usually the, the metric I was using, at least trying to use, to gauge my own enthusiasm or, or reaction, was like, what do we get for this, you know? And so sometimes it would be like, hey, right now, the app uses a plain old MySQL database to store all of the data and that works fine, but you know, if we wanna scale this thing up and so it'll run with thousands and thousands of people hitting it all at once, then we probably need to make it work on something like Amazon Web Services, EC2, Cloud. And if you do that, you, you know if you're gonna scale it and have it sharded out to multiple instances, then they can't like have a MySQL database because it needs to be some kind of shared data source that they all use. So you need to refactor the backend data source to be some kind of other thing, just not a plain old MySQL database. So if you talk about, like, hey, maybe we should take that on, maybe we should do that refactor or erase that technical debt or whatever. To me, that's like, okay, yeah, that has a tangible, that's important, you get a benefit from doing that because the, now the app maybe can, can scale up. You, know? you could host 100 versions of the app all over the place and they could all like use the, the data set properly. Uh, tangible benefit, I like it. But then there's kind of like, oh, we're using um, you know, uh, whatever.js library, let's convert all the code to jQuery you know, And to me it's kind of like, that doesn't get us anything except we just in- introduce a bunch of new JavaScript bugs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Am, just, just to be really fair, like I don't mean to pick on the that, the, one of the devs actually did do that. <laughs> and there actually were some bugs, and I'm not trying to pick on him, uh, he's done really good work. And actually uh, there weren't a ton of bugs, there were a few small bugs, and we have fixed them. And I will say, I'm going to give credit where it's due, that switching to jQuery uh, along with some of the jQuery plugins has enabled us to do some more interactive widgets in the UI uh, with JavaScript. So, I mean, I'm not trying to straw man and, and present a biased take on any of it. But it, it's kind of like that, that's the sort of example I was trying to illustrate of like something that doesn't have an immediate big benefit, and it's just kind of like churning the code. Uh, I, I think there's a real inherent cost to touching code, you know, code yes. that works really well. And uh, I think sometimes when new people come onto a team, they just sort of want to put their mitts on all the code and change it and just tweak it and stuff. And it's like hey, may, maybe there's reasons the code is the way it is, and, and you're sort of quietly, subtly messing up stuff or breaking stuff when you change it, you know? And So there is kind of this, I think it's an interesting balance between, like, if there is some more experienced senior developer and new people who work on the same project, like, they both, I think they both have to kind of compromise with each other, and there's kind of a dance to that that I think can benefit both parties. They have to compromise a little bit.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think experience matters a lot. Like, I think... Um... Like, again, I, this just sounds like a lot of new mistakes or like, or just like someone who's been in a culture of like writing software that doesn't have to work. Uh, Anyway, I'm being really cynical and rude, but like.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, B. Like Like, software that, that has to stay up or has to run or if it starts breaking, like people lose money or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like if you have that kind of responsibility that you don't want to fuck around with, hey, let's just change all the JavaScript frameworks and see what happens. Like, again, not to pick on that example, because that's worked out fine for us, but like, yeah, like if you if you sort of make changes to the code, you have to really show a, a cost-benefit to it, right? right? You have to say, this is why I think it's not going to crash everything or break everything, and this is the benefit we're going to get by putting those hours in. It's a little different on my project because it's kind of just a side project. We're just sort of playing around, and it has educational benefit, but nobody's finances, nobody's jobs are on the line. It's not a big important thing yeah. that nobody's primary income or job or something comes from this, so it's p- totally different on my project. But like if some startup, if some team and its health and its future depended on some of these things, then it would be a really big deal to get this right.
0: And it it just annoys me too, because I think like, um, there's this kind of conversation about like, is computer science, is software engineering really engineering? And I think this is the sort of stuff where it's like, this person, like my sense is this person is not a great engineer. Because I think if you're an engineer and you're trying to like, like you'd imagine like when they're creating the car or something, like you just say like, well, you know, cars just sometimes they like, just the engine just sometimes goes on fire and you can't really do anything about it like you know that's not like cars are the most safe vehicles now but I think as an engineer you are trying to always come up with like what's the best most robust solution and with this sort of mentality of just like well you know you're gonna have bugs in your code and yes that's true like just like there's going to cars are not going to be perfect it's still you have to like look at sort of like, how do we solve the problem? Instead of like, well, since there's going to be bugs anyway, that's why it's okay to just arbitrarily change the code because <laughs> it's fun to do that. Like, I, I think it's just totally the wrong mentality. Um, so anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, we both
1: have pretty strong uh, takes on, on this one. That's <laughs> pretty clear why we picked it to talk about it. I think it's yeah. affected both of us, you in the industry and me and my, on my current project that I work on, so. Yeah. Interesting article, though. I mean, I'll give him credit. I, I, I like the article for raising points and giving names to yeah, certain things. True. Like, I like that phrasing. It's kind of funny. Uh, maybe if, if the listener doesn't know, the Dungeon Master terminology comes from Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> the Dungeon Master is the person who uh, controls the story of the game, and all the other players have to, like, go through that person to navigate the, the scenes and stuff. And so right. it's definitely a control metaphor. Like,
0: yeah. So uh, I guess I'll add one more point, which is... Um, So I do think that like this does happen sometimes, like even uh, no matter how you try. And um, I, again, I I would say that like, I can understand when it's like you should leave a project. So let's say like, for example, um, this has happened to me before. Um, You're on a project and you are by far the, you know, you're the critical point of failure. Like if you, if you're gone for two weeks or something, everything's in chaos, like, Or if you're not constantly checking your email and you're not constantly making sure like everything... And it's not necessarily code-wise, but it's just like process-wise, like this team is not big enough to handle all the work that you're doing, like usually is the case. Like you don't have enough time, you don't have enough resources. There are people who are overworked, way too responsible, I guess, for um, the stuff that they're on the hook for delivering. Um, I think in that case, the right thing is to let it go, but... I would say like very much from a different perspective of like for your own sanity, you should leave, and your your absence is going to make the product break. Like it's not like, oh, everything's gonna be fine. Probably when you go, things are gonna be a mess. Like they're gonna mm-hmm. break, but it'll force people to address the problems because really you're being the band-aid. Like a, a friend of mine, um, Albert Wong, who's like a Excellent engineer now working for the government, used to work at Google. Um, Anyway, he, he told me this uh, concept of the martyr was what he called it, which is like, I need to stay on this team. I need to stay on this project because if I don't, it's all going to go to hell. And <laughs> usually it's true. Like they're the, you know, they are actually keeping this team and keeping this project alive. And what Albert, his advice to me and which I think is quite wise, is like, do not be a martyr for the project. You should leave. You should let it fail. You know, have it expose the problems in your system because you are not like this is not scaling if you feel like the martyr of your project so I, I think that can be um, a useful uh, lesson but I don't um, <laughs> I, I don't think that that was the tone of this article it was kind of like <laughs>
1: yeah, that's a very different <laughs> yeah, point right? yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly yeah that's interesting
1: though I, I like that uh, well, one thing I could say to to praise my other developers who I work with on my project <laughs> is I don't think I'm a martyr actually right. i think I think that they have gained a depth of understanding of this code base, uh, plus being talented engineers. I, I think if I just walked away and gave them the reins fully, that they would be fine. There's right. a few areas of the code base they're not as familiar with, but they're very intelligent people, and they would be fine. They'd figure it out and so you know kudos to them they're good they're good developers. that's why I like to work with them. Uh, so I'm not the martyr of the code base, but I am the Marty of the codebase. Oh, man.
0: <laughs> Good one, Marty.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Interesting stuff. We'll post a link to that article if any of the listeners want to read about it, about the Dungeon Master stuff. Um, so I, I think that wraps up our episode. Uh, we we did our quickies. Uh, hopefully that turned out okay. We did our tech news discussion. We talked about the Dungeon Master blog entry. And uh, that's it, I guess. Thanks again for, for <laughs> listening. And uh, now that we're kind of more back on a regular broadcasting schedule. I think you can expect us to throw an episode up about once a week. And and we really appreciate people sticking with us and coming back now that we're back recording again.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.
1: Thanks.